Yeah, uh, Sonic or Sasodic. I sent you Zodic. I don't know. Yeah, the Zodic. The Zodics. Yeah, the Zodics. Yeah, it had a lot of different uh, options for it. So it's quite entertaining. All right. So it's great to see you as always. Um, and uh, last week we had a wonderful discussion about the Tzadik and what role the Tzadik plays. And um, we discussed that a Tzadik is really something that's beyond us. Uh, Baruch, nice to see you. Hope you're enjoying your trip. Um, Thanks, Rabbi. Okay, good, good. All right, send us some cold air. Okay, I hear we're getting it tomorrow. So um, it's not a problem. There's plenty up here. <laughs> we don't want, we don't want that cold, please. Thank you. And not not yeah. Don't worry. I think what we're going to be in the seventies tomorrow or something. Wow, it's freezing. Okay, so um, uh, you know. Uh, so anyways, the um, we we started discussing the tzaddik and uh, what their role is and what they might do. We had lengthy discussions about that. We didn't actually cover a lot of text. And so some of what we spoke about last week is actually going to be within the text today. And um, so that's what we're going to do. And um, But just to, to recap, Itzadik is someone that is much more than just the ability to uh, to have more good deeds than bad deeds. It's It's an internal question and again as i've mentioned all the time the tanya is very interested in our internal workings because that's what the tanya is is its main focus is on as when we started this chapter i said the titles are not important as much as the titles are indicative of what's going on inside of you and that's really what the tanya is about the tanya comes primarily to teach us how to change what's going on inside of us the inner battle uh, so titles are indicative of the inner battle but the goal is that we have to know that our goal is not so much the title, but the inner battle and what's going on inside of us. So in this chapter, we discussed last week, we discussed what is the inner battle of the tzaddik. The inner battle of the tzaddik is much more than just someone who never sins. It's someone who has no desire for sin because the evil inside of them has been completely subdued. Or in the case of a complete tzaddik, as we're going to discuss, the evil within them has been transformed to good. But in either scenario, they have zero desire for anything bad. So people ask, how do they operate as a human being? They do operate as a human being, but on a different level, everything within them is, 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 is pure holiness. There's no sense of desire at all. In other words, even when they enjoy eating a pizza uh, for godly reasons, it's much more than us eating a pizza for godly reasons. Um, they experience pleasure, I would say, at a different uh, on a different wavelength. Um, you know, do they taste the chocolate cake? I'm sure they taste the chocolate cake, but again... Uh, they experience physical sensations. You cannot say they're not physical at all, but they experience it a different sensation. For example, we spoke about the Alter Rebbe, who derived no pleasure from his food at all. He was able to eat the soup that was super salty. Um, so they have some ability to transcend because their senses are, are I would say, different. How exactly they experience them, I, I couldn't tell you because I'm not there. Or if I was, I'm not likely to tell you. Um, you know, or as another another way I like telling people in in my last meeting with all the hidden tzaddiks, we've decided not to tell you, you know. <laughs> so regardless, uh, however you want to take it, um, I, I couldn't really tell you exactly how they experienced. There are different stories that one can glean ideas from. But again, the exact experience is not for us. What's most important and for our discussion is, again, understanding the level of the tzaddik that helps us understand uh, the, the texts that we had in chapter one. 
which ultimately lead us to a place to understand how the texts in chapter one apply to us. You know, there are the texts that apply to the Tzaddik and there will be the texts that apply to us. There will be other lessons we had from the Tzaddik and in general, of course, we, we mentioned how Tzaddiks are people at a, at a totally different level. Um, someone asked me this week an interesting question. It's a very good question. You know, if we're saying that Tzaddiks are people who really have no desire for evil and and, and obviously we're going to assume that our, the great people mentioned in the Bible are Tzaddiks, how do we find that they sinned? they're tzaddiks they should have no desire for sin so first of all one, one answer can be that maybe they sinned before they became a full tzaddik one answer but it's not the entire answer because additionally um as i spoke about in my shavuot class um based on the talmud the talmud says whoever says that king david sinned is making a mistake right you read the whole story over there with king david and Bathsheba, and it looks pretty bad and uh it sure looks like he sinned pretty pretty bad um, nevertheless, the Talmud states emphatically, if you say that he sinned, uh, you're making a mistake. And so I went into a, a discussion and a topic on Shavuot to explain exactly what it means that he didn't sin and how he didn't sin. <clears throat> the point of that is that uh, their sins, yes, they they do, even, even when we say they didn't sin as we read it, they did sin to an extent, but their sins are all within the realm of good. In other words, they were doing something good, but maybe in, in the wrong manner. Um but very different than, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, you know. So, uh, you know, we might do bad things on the way to doing good things. Uh, within a tzaddik, it's explained they have choices of good. Now, a tzaddik can become bad. We even have a story in the Talmud. There was a Kohen Gadol who was a Kohen Gadol for, for 80 years, and then he became a uh, he became a heretic. So there's, there is the possibility that they can lose their tzaddik status. But while they are a tzaddik, um, they, they, they do not sin at all um they are they are complete but well either they they have completely no desire or their desire is is subdued but regardless our belief is that a tzaddik is someone who does not sin at all and we have to understand that sins that are written within the uh within the tanakh within the stories are number one they're written in ways that we can appreciate them and learn lessons from them and number two uh we have to understand that these are people of different stature and their sins are of a different stature just a simple easy example of this is for example the punishment that moses got for hitting the rock instead of talking to it i mean when you read that it's like a well, big deal i mean okay so he in fact when you read the matter it tells you he first spoke to the rock and the rock didn't let forth a while so then he hit it and, and you kind of read it and like well, does the punishment match the sin um so and that's considered moses greatest sin right so you you're getting an idea so did Moses sin? Yes, but his sin was very uh, a minor infraction. Wouldn't even run the radar of sin in our level of sin, right? Hitting the rock instead of talking to it, um, especially after you tried talking to it. So again, we have to understand that the sins that that the tzaddikim have, um, the sins that the tzaddikim have, um, are of a different caliber, a different level. They are sometimes written in ways that we can read it as they are a lowly sin like us, but they're not. Uh, someone here asked, uh, what about the text of King David? I, I can't repeat my class on Shavuot, but if you hopefully you were there on Shavuot and uh, I explained all the different texts, um, but it's not really just, I mean, it's explained in many places. Um, I, I, you don't just have to take my word for it. You can research it as well. I'm sure someone else gave a class on it as well. Uh, but there are different ways of, of reading a text. Um, so 
I'm not going to go into it, but that's the idea. I, you know, I presented, I think it was two or three hours on Shavuot to present, uh, you know, the way of understanding the story of King David. And the same can apply to many other sins that are written in the uh, Tanakh. Um, this is, of course, a matter of belief. This is our belief about our tzaddikim, you know. Um, in other words, I can't prove to you from the text of the Tanakh that these people were super righteous, right? This is a matter of belief that we have, that they were righteous tzaddikim. And, and based on that belief, we have ways of interpreting and reading the text. But uh, it's definitely, um, again, it's a matter of belief. I, I, I can't say that I could prove it to you. I can show you texts of classic Jewish texts, whether it's Medrash, whether it's Chumash, whether it's Talmud, that, that points to these ideas. Uh, but ultimately, again, um, this, this is something you'd have to accept on belief. And, and there may be others that may read into these stories something else. You know, we'll have to leave it at that. You know, as it says, there's 70 ways of understanding the Torah. One's not right. One's not wrong. There's just 70 ways uh, because God is infinite, infinite possibilities. There's 70 ways of understanding the Torah and um, the different ways of reading it uh, hold different meaning and lessons for us in our lives. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. But today we're, we're, we're studying the Tanya. So the Tanya's worldview is a tzaddik as someone who has no desire for evil. Um, okay. With that being said, we are going to uh, now look at um, a little bit of the uh, text. Um, I believe last week we got to the bottom of page 125, and then we started discussing. So we're going to go back to the bottom of page 125, and uh, we're going to read from there. We really discussed all of this, so it shouldn't be... Um, shouldn't be a question. Okay. It says here, the incomplete tzaddik. Okay, I, I see. I just read the note a little quicker. Uh, someone said, and he sinned that God forgave him. Yes, that's true. But the question is, what was the nature of the sin that God had to forgive him for? Was it as bad as is written or not? And, and honestly, as I pointed out in my Shavuos class, if you say it's as bad as it's written, we have a lot of other questions. How do we herald uh, King David as as this you know paradigm of righteousness. I mean, yeah, God forgave him, but that's quite a uh, egregious sin, uh, committing adultery. Um, it would be hard for us to believe he really 100% committed adultery, and yet we hold him on this pedestal, regardless of being forgiven. Uh, you know, because he he did teshuvah and like of course that of course. erased. That erase your of sin. course, of course, it says he did the shuvah, but nevertheless, there are certain sins we would not put a person on a pedestal, even if they did the shuvah, and adultery would definitely be one of those. So to, to say it's literally he committed adultery would be very difficult to say, aside from there being other texts which would contradict saying he 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 he, he did complete adultery. So yes, the text is true. He did God did forgive him. The Torah doesn't say that the Tanakh doesn't say anywhere he actually committed adultery. It tells you the story when you understand the story the way we presented it, and it wasn't actually adultery, uh, but it was a sin nonetheless. But again, our understand of his sin and our understand of what he had to be forgiven for is different when we delve deep into the texts. But to say that he actually committed adultery and yet God forgave him, and and this is the this is the guy that we're singing all his songs and praises uh, all the time and read the Book of Psalms. Um, would be a difficult thing to say but anyways that, that's that's how it is 
All right. Let's go on to the uh, incomplete tzaddik. All right. So um, the incomplete tzaddik is not at the bottom of page uh, 125. The incomplete tzaddik is not completely repulsed by the physical indulgence, which tells us that there's something lacking in the way he detests evil. Um, with the incomplete tzaddik, we spoke about this last week. Since he does not utterly detest the sitra achra, the evil side, he is therefore not completely repulsed by evil either. As And so long as the loathing and repulsion is not absolute, there must necessarily remain a trace of love of evil and pleasure in the sitra achra. So this is what we discussed last week, that love of God and hate of evil are uh, two sides of the same coin. And, and the more you have of one, the less you have of the other and vice versa. And therefore, the incomplete sadik since he has not completely gotten rid of his evil, even though it never raises its head, you can see it in the fact that A, his love of God is not complete, and B, that his repulsion to evil is not absolute. Now he continues, meaning the soiled garments, his attachment to physical pleasure has not been completely and thoroughly discarded, which means that the animal has not been completely transformed to good since it has still some attachment to soiled garments. Why then is the incomplete sodding not drawn to physical indulgence? Only with the incomplete tzaddik, that residual attachment to gratification is devoid of influence and effectively absent due to its insignificant presence. And that is why such a person is called a tzaddik whose evil is suppressed by good and voided for him as stated in chapter one. So again, in chapter one, we had uh, a couple names, a couple ways of describing a tzaddik. We, we called him on the one, this tzaddik, right? We called him on one hand, a tzaddik, an incomplete tzaddik. We now understand why he's called an incomplete tzaddik because his evil is not completely gotten rid of. We also wrote that uh, it says that it uh, that a tzaddik. Uh, he's also called a tzaddik viralo, a tzaddik that has evil. So the simple understanding means that his life is bad. He's a tzaddik that has a bad life, but our understanding here is much deeper than that. It means a tzaddik that he has bad in him, even though it's suppressed. Therefore, he's a tzaddik. But tzaddik viralo, he is a tzaddik who has bad. Okay. So again, in a tzaddik, you could have a tzaddik betovlo, a tzaddik who has only good, and a tzaddik viralo, a tzaddik that has some bad. Similarly, you have a tzaddik gamor, a tzaddik, a complete tzaddik, and a tzaddik sheine gamor, an incomplete tzaddik. By the way, when we come to the rush, and when we come to the wicked person, we'll have the flip side. We'll have a, a rush of viralo, a wicked person who is has bad, basically totally bad, and a rush of a tovlo, and a wicked person who has some good. So it's the opposite coin. Let's continue here. But it is also for this reason the presence of the residual evil that his love of God lacks its full intensity, which is why he is termed an incomplete tzaddik. We discussed this last week again at length, these two sides of the coin. And again, this was a personal lesson for us, as I'm just going to read here on the side in the practical lessons. The rule is the more you love God, the more you will be repulsed by evil. There is no neutral ground. This is one theme that Tanya hits upon multiple times. There's no neutral ground. Uh, there, there's no middle ground, either one way or you're the other. Of course, you can be partially one way, partially the other. But again, the, the more you have of one, the less you have of the other. That's that's just the way it works. So let's read what he says. It seems incorrect to call, right, I, I said the example last week, the more you love physical things, the less you're going to be involved in more spiritual things and vice versa. It seems incorrect to call incomplete tzaddik someone who has totally neutralized his desire for physical pleasure. Practically speaking, this person has completely mastered his darker side, which no longer troubles him. The Tanya therefore explains that the term incomplete refers not to his status as a tzaddik, but the intensity of his love for God. He has enough love for God to achieve complete self-mastery to be a tzaddik. It's just that he could have more. All right, so again, he's incomplete because he's not complete. He could be more. 
Um, now he says, now this status of the incomplete tzaddik is subdivided into tens of thousands of levels, depending on the precise nature, both qualitatively and quantitatively, of the minuscule evil that remains in him. Qualitatively, it might be from the negative side of any of the four elements. It goes back to chapter one, the evil within us can be one of the four elements, uh, wind, water, fire, and ash, ash, ruach, maim, and dust, earth. And qualitatively, it may differ in the extent to which its influence is voided by delusion, such as, for example, delusion by 60, 1,000, or 10,000, right? So, for example, he's giving an example here from kosher. Everybody knows, or I think most people know, right? You've heard of the concept. If you drop a little bit of milk into a pot of chicken soup, does that become forbidden or permitted? Uh, or is it permitted? And the answer is, well, it depends. If the milk is only 1 60th of the entire solution, then the solution is still considered kosher. Is that bitul, right? Bitul, Ken. Yes, bitul, the, the nullification, exactly. So you, uh, when you drop a drop of milk, by mistake, of course, you shouldn't do it on purpose, but if milk drops into something kosher, uh, it's okay. And, and by the way, this applies in other areas. Sometimes it might happen, uh, let's say you take a a, uh, a dairy spoon and you put it by mistake in the, in the meat pot. If that spoon was used in the last 24 hours, you have to call a rabbi and then they might figure out, you know, is the spoon 1 60th of the pot? And then if it is, then we'd say the pot is kosher. But if it's... Uh, if, if if the ratio is more than one sixtieth, then it becomes a problem. It's just uh, easy to throw it away, Rabbi. To throw away the soup? Yeah, the whole thing. Oh, why? Uh, well, if it's... you have to call the rabbi, like, let's you, you're making dinner and you're you're calling the rabbi. Rabbi, listen, this happened. It's just like you don't know what the rabbi is doing. Maybe the rabbi is having dinner or doing something. So um... just throw it away. <laughs> Or you won't call rabbi all times of the day for such a such a thing. I mean, what else? Do, yeah, what the else rabbi's do? here to serve us. Yeah, what else do rabbis do? If you're exactly, uh, I, I figure that anything, you eat and you take care of the kids and stuff like that. I do, I do, but uh, you know, I appreciate when I get these types of calls. I, I would say the some of the other types of calls I get, I would I would like to find less. <laughs> some of these people are calling me for things that are really not rabbinic, you know. Uh, you know, I, I'd rather get more of those calls of, of, of the spoon in the, in the, in the soup. Um, I tell everybody, by the way, you can, you can call me whenever you want. If I, if I, uh, don't want it ringing, I turn off my ringer. All right. But, you may uh, have opened the floodgates here, Rabbi. It's fine. Uh, it's okay. okay, okay right. Can I, I'm just, I'm, I know this is off topic. So if, if it is just tell me and I'm fine, yeah. what, what kind of calls do you get that are, are like not rabbinic? Just one example, if you want, because <laughs> you mentioned it, I'm curious. Like, um, yeah, whatever. Sometimes things are are more medical or more. Uh, they're just I'm just not the right person, or or, okay. or 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 sometimes there are things. Or for example, now you know now that have we have, we have an administrator. Sometimes I you know I tell people you know you know speak to the administrator you know if you want to okay. okay. or whatever, or whatever you know. I'd okay. rather spend more time on the on the rabbinic than the administrative stuff. You know. Understandable. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there, there are other things that I, you know, I just don't want to divulge. You know, people can call about a vast range of things. Uh, sometimes rabbis are like paramedics. You know, they're the first first responders. Um, but anyways, um, okay. So we have over here. 
um, that right in kosher, right? It requires a 60 times dilution. By the way, uh, just so you know, like I have questions in kosher sometimes as well, more advanced questions. I'll call rabbis as well. Like that's that's kind of what they do. Um, if a rabbi cannot answer halachic questions, then what's the point? I, I will say though, I was actually, uh, I'm, I'm with studying with a group of rabbis a certain topic right now. And one of the rabbis is mentioning that uh, his rabbi, who was a very famous rabbi in Jerusalem, um, he, he would hate getting phone calls on Friday. He says people call him on Friday before Shabbos. He says if people call him with complex questions that only he could answer, he was fine. But when people would call him like about a, a spoon in a, in a pot of milk, he says there's there's a hundred other rabbis in Jerusalem who could answer that question. <laughs> you know, call me with the deep, complex questions. You know, don't call me with the simple, you know, spoon in the milk. So uh, one day when I get there, don't call me about that. But I'm not there yet. You know, I'm not the uh, the rabbi who's uh, answering the most complex questions. You know, when I get there, then I'll stop answering those. Um, so anyways, it's just an interesting, interesting thing to hear. Um, uh, okay. Um, we have over here. By the way, just to set far as saying throwing out the soup, I just want to mention one more thing. Um, it's better not to throw out the soup if you can, because there's also a, a law of baltash that's not to waste. And so if there's a possibility that uh, something is kosher, it's actually better not to throw it out. It, in fact, our sages say, koach tehetera adit, that a rabbi can find leniencies is it means that there's a, uh, it, it, so to speak, better. Not to say you should always find a leniency, but when there is a leniency, there's something great about it. Uh, they, they, there's a story, I forget, it was like of a rabbi who he once said, like uh, a lady came to him with a with a with a um, with a with a, a question on an animal that had been slaughtered, and the rabbi spent hours and hours to find ways to find that it's kosher, and eventually he did. This was back in the day when people would bring their own animals to the shochet and then check them, and. Um, his student says, "Why, you know, why did you try so hard?" He says, "Listen, when I get to heaven, I don't want that cow over there with me in heaven accusing me of, uh, of, uh, you know, throwing him out. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to see him across me. You know, who wants to fight with a cow? It's a cute story, but you get the idea that, um, you know, I guess uh, jumping on to last week where we discussed, you know, when you get to heaven, God will ask any pleasures in the world that you didn't enjoy. However, you understand it, but the general idea is that if there's something that we can elevate." And it is kosher. Uh, we shouldn't just throw it out just for doubt. If, if it's possible, it is kosher. We should try and find out. If it's not kosher, it's not kosher. And then you get the mitzvah of throwing it out. But if it's possible, it's kosher. Um, um, you know, you try and keep it if you can. Uh, of course, there's there's time involved and, and, and effort, and sometimes it's not worth it. I'm not going to debate that. Uh, but anyways, I, I do want to mention... Yes. Just a quick question. Um, yeah. So... I understand the whole focus for us is not about this. It's to give maybe some context to the things that yeah. we need to pay attention to and things like that. Yeah. Um, but it, it also seems clear, like there really is no way for us to really identify who is uh, a tzaddik and whether they're a complete or an incomplete tzaddik. Right. I, and again, I, I realize it's not that it's that important either, but it's not, it's not really for people except maybe other tzaddiks to be able to identify right. who those people are. And we just wouldn't know. I mean, we can't, we That's can't correct. make the distinction between somebody who, who, even if we said, okay, well, that person is, you know, clearly a tzaddik. We, we don't have the ability to, you know, to make the kind of fine tuning adjustments and say, okay, well, they're, they're really an incomplete tzaddik as opposed to a complete. Is that a true statement? 
That is a true statement. Uh, we, we, we would have trouble identifying a true tzaddik. We will in a moment discuss how complete tzaddikim are very rare. And that's going to be the next section over here. Uh, but one thing that comes out of all of this as well, in addition to us not being able to identify, which is a true statement, is that um, I think we also kind of get the point that we're not going to be a tzaddik, which, you know, you might be depressed, but that's why we have the further chapters explaining to us what we can be. But we're not going to be a tzaddik. But yes, we, we, we will not be able to tell the difference. Okay. But I, again, I said, I think the discussion over here about con comparing and contrasting the... Um, the uh, levels of, uh, uh, you know, tzaddik was important in, in showing that the flip side that the amount that you love God is commensurate with the amount of worldly involvement that you have and vice versa or evil within your heart. And that's an important discussion. Um, but good point. Well taken. Um, I just want to mention another thing here. He's talking about dilution. So you should know kosher is not only about a dilution of 60 times. There are some types of dilution that require... 100, sometimes 200, and sometimes 1,000, sometimes 10,000, depending on uh, their, their different different areas of kosher. So meat and milk, it's always 60. But you should know there are other areas that dilution applies in different areas. And so he's saying just like in kosher, you have uh, you know different amounts that of dilution to make something be considered not there. Uh, so to in Sadiqim, the amount that their evil is diluted can be at different levels. And just like with the milk and the meat, we still consider it all, so to speak, meaty, even though there's a little bit of milk in there. Similarly, the sadik is, is considered completely righteous, even though they have trace amounts of non-kosher in them. So this is what he says. The various levels of incomplete sadik account for the many tzaddikim found throughout the generations. As the Talmud states, 18,000 tzaddikim stand before the whole one, while self-mastery is extremely difficult. Many throughout history have achieved the level of incomplete sadik. So what we get from here is that the tzaddik level, despite... I would say most of us here never reaching this incomplete tzaddik has been, uh, so to speak, there have been many, many of them throughout the generations. But now he's going to say the complete tzaddik is a very rare occurrence. So let's read. However, it was about the levels of the complete tzaddik that Rabbi Shem Bar Yechai said, I have seen elevated men, that they are few. That which is why the complete tzaddik are referred to as elevated men. Because they transformed the evil urge of their animal soul and elevated the holiness, teaching the animal soul to love God. So again, the incomplete tzaddik is someone who their their evil is very much subdued to tiny, tiny trace amounts. But to completely transform all of that evil, and they transform some of their evil as well, but a complete transformation, the b'nai aliyah, the elevated people, that is only certain people very rare people. To demonstrate the Rabbi Shimon viewed the elevated men as an elite class of complete tzaddikim, the Tanya cites an account of the Zohar. As is written in the Zohar's introduction, the one Rabbi Chia wanted to ascend to the heavenly chamber of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, he heard a voice break out and say, who among you has transformed darkness into light and bitter flavors into sweet ones before arriving here? Rabbi Shimon, by his own testimony, was one of the elevated men who required others who wished to enter a spiritual boat to be the same stature to have completely transformed the animal soul. Now, I want to point out that this again is an important idea because these two tzaddikim kind of represent two modes of our divine service, and we actually have both of them within our life. And uh, again, this is another lesson we can take from here. Uh, one is, of course, the incomplete tzaddik, which is subduing our evil. And the other one is the complete tzaddik, which is transforming our evil. And both of those are correct paths 
in our divine service, and we, all of us, employ all of them. Even a incomplete tzaddik employs a transformation as well. A complete tzaddik, I guess, only do, does transformation because he doesn't need to subdue anymore once you transform everything. But for the rest of us, even those of us who are not tzaddiks, we have in different areas of our life, some areas of our life we have to subdue, some areas we are able to transform. Um, it just depends. You know, uh, you know, you can read about uh, many, many people who uh, were criminals or whatever, and then they use their skills uh, to help. You know, a lot of hackers who then work for the U.S. government is just an, an example. But in our own lives, sometimes we have bad character traits that can be transformed. Um, and some character traits that have to be completely subdued, right? Some things are just bad. Completely bad, you got to totally take them out. There are other things that can be transformed. And... Um, as we see, transformation, in a sense, is greater. The Tanya will discuss the greatness of subduing. You know, you may think subduing is just holding things at bay, but actually, the Tanya will discuss later on even subduing itself. God has great pleasure from it. But these are discussions later on in the Tanya. But what you get from here, an important point, is that there are two ideas. One is called eskafi, which means subduing. And one is called the transformation. And both of these are uh, very, very important elements in our divine service of God. And we can see that in our personal lives as well, that sometimes we need to push things away and sometimes we need to transform things. Okay. Um, let us uh, continue over here. The next section is going to be like this. We, we discussed that um, the complete tzaddik was called a b'nai aliyah. Uh, by the way, this week we're going to do more text because I really want to finish the discussion of Sadiqim because I know you're all antsy. Why are we discussing Sadiqim? It's not so relevant to us. So I, I really want to hopefully get through all the text of Sadiqim this week. So, and, and point out the lessons along the way like I have done. We discussed that um, the Sadiqim were called B'nai Aliyah, referred to elevated people. One reason we call them elevated people is because they elevate everything, meaning what was formerly low was evil, now is elevated, is holy. Now we're going to give another reason they're called elevated people. And again, this is going to have a lesson for us as well. So let's read. A further reason why the term elevated men is applied to complete tzaddik, because in addition to their transformation of negativity, even their positive activities of Torah mitzvah's observance are devoted exclusively to God. In other words, not only are they called elevated people because they elevate the evil within them and transform it, but even in their doing good things, there's an element of elevation, meaning they are devoted completely towards Aliyah, towards God. High and hearts are the greatest fights, i.e. their worship is not carried out merely to attach themselves to God to satisfy personal thirsting of their souls, which naturally thirst for God. As the verse states, all who are thirsty go to the water, as explained elsewhere. In other words, we can serve God out of selfish purposes. And within selfish, there's different levels. There's the selfish desire of our animalistic soul, meaning I can come to appreciate and understand the living a life, meaning and purpose and God. Or, or, you know, let's go to the most selfish. If I do God's mitzvahs, uh, I'll get rewarded. I'll get money. I'll get fame. I'll get whatever. So you can do the right thing out of selfishness. Okay, we understand that. Within selfishness, selfishness means the focus is on self. Within the focus on self, there are many, many different levels. Okay, there's there's ultimate selfishness, but there are levels of selfishness which are not, which are not necessarily 
clearly, apparently selfish. And one of those levels of selfish, the highest level of selfishness, is fulfilling a personal desire of your godly soul. What does that mean? You have we obviously know we have an animalistic soul. We can give it selfish reasons to want God. We have a godly soul as well that has selfish reasons to want God. What does selfish mean? Again, focus on self. What is the godly soul selfish reason? The godly soul has a thirst and a desire to connect to God because it's its original source. And so as, as holy as it sounds, I just want God. The desire for God is completely, and, and, the, and, the, and the drive to do mitzvot is completely for your personal selfish reasons that you desire God. Now, halavai, we should all be there, but we're explaining a great tzaddik over here. The time is going to say a, a complete tzaddik doesn't even serve God out of a personal thirst for God coming, stemming from their godly soul. A complete tzaddik serves God completely for God's desires, not for their own personal desires. They completely only think about God and what God wants. There is no element and thought about self. And the difference is expressed in this story. I'll tell you a story to, 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 to just describe to you the difference. Um, in the times of the third Chabad Rebbe, the Russian government was trying to make mandatory restrictions on Jewish education. And many, many Jewish leaders convened in Moscow, I believe, or Petersburg, to fight with the government. And uh, they were fighting, fighting, fighting. They weren't getting anywhere. One day, the, the third Chabad Rebbe gets up and uh, and and he, he starts giving a speech and he faints. And after they revived him, one of the other uh, Hasidic rabbis there asked him, he says, why did you faint? He says, because of this terrible uh, decree. He says, but, but what do you mean? You tried your best. And he answered him, yes, I tried my best. But I, we haven't accomplished. The, the concept was not accomplished. Meaning like this. If it's about me and my personal desire to do the best thing, then I, I might suffice with trying my best. But if it's about God, um, then my sole desire and purpose is that God's will is done. So even if I try my best, if God's will is not completed, God's will is not done, I am always unsatisfied. It's a very high level. It's a very high level. Again, you know, to us and to most people to give ourselves uh, sanity, you know, we usually tell people, well, you tried your best. Right? You tried your best. You tried your best. But uh, to a really, really righteous person, trying their best is not enough because they, they feel God's pain. They feel God's pain. They feel what God wants. And no matter how hard they try, they they, they feel what God wants and, and they kind of feel um, upset when, 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 you know, let down when it's not done. So this is just kind of to give you an idea. Uh, of what we're looking at with a complete tzaddik, completely devoted with no sense of self at all. So let's continue reading here this text. A second defining quality of the complete tzaddik, which distinguishes him from the incomplete tzaddik, is the unusually elevated quality of his worship. For most people worship satisfied personal spiritual inclinations. Since the soul naturally thirsts for God, the complete tzaddik surpasses even his limitation and worships God in a way that transcends his personal limitation. As he says, rather the worship of the complete tzaddik is clarified by the Tikkuni Zohar in its comments on the Zohar's teaching, who is a pious one, chassid, a person who acts kindly with his creator. This is from Pirkei Avot. Pirkei Avot says, Ezu chassid, who is a pious person, hamishasidim kono, someone who acts kindly with his creator. 
So what does it mean you act kindly with your creator? As we're explaining here, it means someone who uh, does actions only for God. It's not about them at all. The complete static acts only for God. All his kindness is an act of worship and is not self-serving in any way. In explaining this teaching of the Zohar and Tikkuni Zohar, notes that the term used here for his creator resembles the word nest, khan. Tikkuni Zohar explains that the pious one is one who acts kindly with his nest, which is the Shekhinah. This is explaining it in, in more mystical terms. God's nest, so to speak, is the Shekhinah, divine presence on earth. The Kapitzadik devotes his entire life, not for himself, but for the sake of the Shekhinah. Okay. What he's trying to say here is that why does this person serve God is for God. And what does it mean for God? For God's desire. What is God's desire? There should be a Shekhinah on this earth. What is the Shekhinah? I think we explained in a previous class. Shekhinah is the level of God that rests in this world. That's what Shekhinah means. Shekhinah means resting. Shekhinah is translated as a divine presence. And it really is one and the same. Divine presence means God is revealed presently here. Shekhinah means to rest. That means God is resting on this earth. And so this is what a tzaddik desires. That there should be a Shekhinah, a resting of God's divine presence revealed in this earth. As he says here, to unite the Shekhinah down in this world with the blessed Holy One, God's heavenly presence. In heaven, the glory of God's presence shines brightly, but here on earth is eclipsed. The point of our good deeds and worship on earth is to make God's heaven, heavenly presence manifest here too. The Kabbalists refer to this unifying the Shekhinah with the blessed Holy One. And it is to this goal that the complete Tzaddik devotes himself exclusively. Now let's continue. As this selfless intent is expressed in the Zohar in the section called Raya Mehemna, the Torah portion of Tzaytzeh, like a son who exerts himself for his father and mother, whom he loves more than himself, more than his own nefesh, ruach, and neshama, and everything of his own he considers as worthless, existing only to carry the will of his mother and father, and he is prepared to die for them and to redeem them for captivity. I always found this so this is a parable that's given in the Zohar to explain the tzaddik's desire for the parents. Just as a child will do anything for their parents, even to give up their own life because the focus is not on themselves, uh, the tzaddik also is focusing on God as his parent and will do anything for God, not considering themselves at all. I always found this, this parable interesting because the reality is usually the other way around, right? A parent will always do anything for their child. Um, not, you know, that's usually the way, the way this works, right? So in other words, if you wanted to bring an example of someone who will do something totally selfless without thinking about themselves at all, completely about the other, a parable of a parent caring for a child seemingly would fit better. At least that would be my estimation. My only guess why this is the example given is because this example fits more with what we're referring to you know we are god's children so to give an example of us being god's children and doing anything for our parents fits more with the topic on hand again this is just my thoughts i'm just throwing them out there it's always something that i've always thought of you know when i read this parable you don't really see this as much as you see you know children doing for their parents doing for their children more than children doing for their parents but you do see to an extent uh, the way uh, uh, many, many children will care for their parents as they age in very selfless ways and uh, putting their their careers and their time aside to just spend time and make sure in their parents' elder years they're cared for and taken care of. So uh, you do see this to an extent, uh, you know, that they're prepared to to die for them or redeem them from captivity. That's the part that I kind of, I don't know any parent that would want their children to do that for them. So... Again, the, the parable in the way it's presented presents me with some difficulty. I didn't actually look up 
I should have looked up, you know, on some of the, the, the commentaries that explain these things. I didn't look up, so I'm not sure. But um, regardless, I think it, it presents the idea. And if, if it helps you to think about it in, in reference of a parent for a child. But we can definitely say that that on a whole, of course, there's outliers of parents, but most parents care for their children in selfless ways. And uh, it's not uh, that they should be a good parent, right? Or that, or, or, or you know what? You nobody can come to parents and say you tried your best, right? That's not good enough for a parent. Oh, you, you know, you tried your best at parenting. You know, um, at the end of the day, you will feel your child's pain, even though you know you've tried your best. You will feel your child's pain if if your children are suffering in life and having issues, and you know you can't do anything about it. You accept that as a fact, but nevertheless, um, you would feel your child's pain. And uh, that's what a, a complete sonic feels God's pain. And, and unless God's shekhinah, unless God's divine presence is shining here on this earth, um, we're going to be unhappy. Uh, or I should say complete sonic is going to be unhappy. For the most of us, if we can even come to a level where we serve God out of a thirst of our soul to thirst for God, I think we'll be okay. But nevertheless, um, there is a, a somewhat lesson from here that um, there are times when we could do things selflessly for God is really the idea. You know, do things in a more selfless way and uh, try to accomplish God's mission, which is ultimately Mashiach, right? Um, just to give a parable, why the desire for Mashiach can sometimes be selfless, not selfish. Um, they tell the story of a... Uh, there's a couple of different stories, but uh, they tell the story of a, of a, of a you know a farmer in, in Russia, and the rabbi was talking about you know one day Mashiach is going to come, and we're going to leave you know we're going to uh, we're all going to go to Israel, and um, you know we'll all live there happily ever after. So uh, the uh, guy comes home and tells his wife all excitedly what's going to happen, and the wife says, "What do you mean we're comfortable here? We have our we have our cow, we have our chicken, we have our farm." So the, so the guy goes back to the rabbi with a good, it's a good point. So he tells the rabbi, he says, Rabbi, why do we need Mashiach? We have our chicken, we have our cow. So the rabbi says, well, you have all the goyim, all the anti-Semitism. Don't you want to leave all the goyim? So he comes back to his wife. He tells his wife, hey, listen, you know, the rabbi says, uh, you know, we got to leave the goyim. We got to leave all the all the uh, anti-Semites. You know, it's not good enough of a reason to leave. You know, it's back in Russia when things were dangerous. So um, uh, the wife says, yeah, but tell the rabbi how about Mashiach takes all the goyim away and we stay here, <laughs> you know? So uh, obviously it's a joke of a story uh, or the other story is told, you know, uh, it's kind of a similar, but the end of the story is kind of like, you know, God saved us from all the pogroms. God saved us from all the anti-Semites. God will save us from Mashiach too, you know? This is the other joke given. Uh, the point is that uh, sometimes we're happy in our life. We don't really want the utopian era of Mashiach. Yeah, life is difficult. There's painful in life, but... We really want to enter the times of Mashiach when we'll have to be totally righteous and we'll have to give up all our fun and games. You know, no more watching the NFL and MLB and NHL and all the other fun. And, and you know, we won't find pleasure in chocolate cake anymore. And all the all those all those things, you know, we're all going to be tzaddikim when Mashiach comes. Do we really want to give up our fun life and, and our PlayStations and our... and our? But, uh, you know, our desire for Mashiach, we're told that that the, the physical promises of Mashiach are to get us excited. You know, it says, you know, candy, money will grow on trees and stuff like that. Just get us excited for it. But really, our deep desire for Mashiach should be a more of a selfless desire that this is the ultimate goal that we're working towards. And uh, so no matter how good 
our world is, which unfortunately now it's not very good. But even if life looks okay, we should still want the Mashiach. Notice we shouldn't have to get the painful moments to desire the Mashiach. We should always desire the Mashiach because that's God's ultimate purpose in creating the world. All right, we're going to move on to the last section of the class. The last section of the class will explain an interesting line that we say in um, in prayers every single day. So that even though it's a little bit Kabbalistic, I want to do it because uh, we have it in the prayers. Uh, thinking I should... Let me get a prayer book. Let's grab a prayer book here. Ah, locked out. One second, let me get a prayer book. I want to explain this prayer. Okay, so every morning, um, every morning we get up, we, we say a bunch of prayers. Now, uh, um, one of the prayers we say is called Baruch Shamar. You may have heard of it, the Baruch Shamar prayer. Now, in the Chabad, and I think most of the dorm, before you say the Baruch Shamar, there's a little line called L'Shem Yichud. And I'll explain what that is in a moment. But just to give you some background on L'Shem Yichud, L'Shem Yichud is a Kabbalistic line that some people say before they do every single mitzvah. In Chabad, we say it. Uh, we say it only. Um, we say it only um, before. We say it in the morning just once, and that goes for the whole day. Let's let me take a look. I'm going to share you, with you this line. It's a very important line. And uh, that way you'll get an idea about uh, what it is. So let's take a look here. This is in every single morning. I'll, I'll share with you, of course, the English. So we say this in the morning. All right, here's what it says. And you might read it. You might want to know, like, what is it talking about? So here's what it says. For the sake of the union of the Holy One, blessed be he, for his Shekhinah to unite the name Yudke with the Vavke in a perfect union in the name of all of Israel. Now, again, we as Chabad say this line only once a day, but our our understanding is that it, it's really for the whole day. It's a preface for our entire day. In Sephardim, Sephardim, I believe, say this line pretty much before they do any mitzvah, L'Shem Yechud, for the sake of a union. And um, so what is this all about? And so this is what I'm, we're going to explain right now. What is this all about? What is it talking about? For the sake of you, the holy and blessed be with his Shekhinah, to unite the name Yudke with the K and a perfect union in the name of all of Israel. So I will explain like this. We explained before Shekhinah is God's divine presence here on this earth. Right? Now we explain that God's divine presence um, may not be so revealed. Or maybe God's divine presence is not so acute. We don't see much of God's divine presence. So whenever we do a mitzvah, right? I'm sure you've heard that idea. When we do a mitzvah, we're, 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 we're revealing God on this earth. That's ultimately the goal. That's why that's what we're doing. We're trying to make this world a more godly place, right? When we say the world a better place, it means a more godly place. So every time you do a mitzvah, you are bringing more godliness into this earth. The, the spiritual mechanism of that is creating a union between the Holy One, Blessed Be He, that means God as He is transcendent from this world, together with the Shekhinah, together with the Divine Presence that's here on this earth. And so what happens is when you're doing a mitzvah, you're, so to speak, drawing down God's Divine Transcendence into the physicality of the earth. So for example, when you light Shabbat candles, 
you're bringing God's transcendent light into the physicality of this earth through these candles. You put on tefillin, you're doing the same thing. So you're, you're, you're unifying the Holy One, blessed be God's transcendence with the Shekhinah, with God's divine presence. That's also hinted to in God's name. God has the four-letter name, right? The Yud, then the He, and then the Vav and the He. Um, the, the first two letters of God's name, I'm not going to get into the Kabbalistic symbolism and how exactly it works, but the first two letters of God's name uh, correlate with God's transcendence. Last two letters of God's name correlate with God's divine presence on this earth. And so we make a union between the two. And again, we're bringing God's transcendence here on, onto this earth. And so that is what this line is about. We make a perfect union here on this earth. So some people say this before every mitzvah, because that's really what every mitzvah does. Chabad, we just say it once a day, and so to speak, is a catch-all to cover the entire day. Both uh, valid ways of doing it, but that's ultimately what every mitzvah is doing now. We can get to uh, deeper and deeper ideas behind this. I also want to point out that this is called a yichud, a union. Now, this is a very important point, a very interesting point. Uh, because if you've come to my Kabbalah course, I've said how everything uh, physical mirrors something spiritual. We know in this earth, one of the most powerful forces is the union between a, a man and a woman. Right? The union, when they come together. Uh, that's why, uh, you know, unfortunately, so to speak, it, 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 you know, there's a lot of songs about this union, shall we say, and the world is kind of obsessed with it. But the, the deeper spiritual reason behind that is because actually the spiritual source of unions, it, it, you, the union between a husband and wife is uh, really, uh, its spiritual source is these spiritual unions when when, when two separate things come together, okay? Um, and so just as in the spiritual worlds, the union is the most powerful and important thing, that's what comes down into this earth. And that's why, by the way, in Judaism, we don't look down at the union between a husband and a wife. It's considered a very holy act, a very important act. And it actually mirrors what goes on in heaven. And um, it's mirroring a, a spiritual reality. And then it, it comes down here on this earth. Um, and you'll actually find a lot of descriptions that are used for physical unions in the spirituality. If you read the Kabbalah, you read about you know hugging and kissing. Uh, because again, all these ideas reflect their spiritual source. Uh, so we have a couple minutes. We're going to now look at the Tanya, which basically explains that if we all care about these divine unions, then surely a uh, tzaddik cares about these divine unions. And that's really what we're, you know, we said a moment ago that, that, that the, the complete tzaddik, his sole focus is, uh, whoops, I went the wrong way. His complete sole focus is, um, his complete and sole focus is uh, God's, uh, you know, making sure God's divine presence happens here on this earth. It happens here on this earth, and that's what those unions are about. So let's read over here. This is actually a parenthesis within the Tanya, so it's a little bit of a more deeper mystical concept. That's why I put it in a parenthesis, but we'll read it. What we get, we get. But I, I gave you the basic idea of what it's talking about. So he says like this: Both dynamics of elevated men work in synergy. At the core of Judaism is a reciprocal relationship. Between humans and God, humans make the effort to worship God, and God responds by showering his blessings and manifesting his presence accordingly. The Kabbalah refers to the spiritual energy generated by humans as the elevating feminine waters, and the response from God as drawing down masculine waters. So this is what he says. For by means of the process of refinement through the tremendous effort of the Kabbalah, refining and transforming their animal souls from Kalipas Noga, 
feminine waters are elevated, meaning when they refine and elevate everything in this earth, it sends a elevation of feminine waters to heaven. The relationship between the elevating feminine waters and drawing down masculine waters is one of cause and effect. The energy of the feminine waters stimulates heavenly activity, known as supernal unions, opening fresh channels by which heavenly energy can manifest down here on this earth. So, just by the way, just like a union creates something new, right? A child can be born from a union. The spiritual unions create a new flow of energy onto this earth as well. And so that's what he's saying. When 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 we elevate and we affect that union in heaven, it causes the masculine waters to be drawn down and we gain more elevation here in this earth. Um, the efforts of the elevated men produce corresponding results. It is the spiritual energy generated by their elevated animal souls that actually empowers their elevated worship to produce this result, i.e. to cause God's heavenly presence to be manifest in this world. This is the connection between the above two. Okay. How exactly are, the, are these masculine waters, the heavenly energies manifest in this earth? So he says, and this is what we discussed a moment ago, through a mitzvah, these energies are nothing other than the waters of kindness within each of the 248 positive Mitzvos, the mitzvah is considered a kindness on the part of God since through the mitzvah, heavenly energy flows into the world. It is called waters of kindness since water expels the klipos, which can only ground themselves to judgment and gvorah. This is the phenomenon of masculine waters that we have explained. So simply put, put it in simple words, when you do a mitzvah and you're elevating the physical item in this earth, you, so to speak, send an elevation of feminine waters, which causes a union in heaven, which then affects drawing down God's light into this earth Right, just like a union in the physical earth creates a child, gives birth to something new, a new channel. It gives birth to a new channel of divine light onto this earth, which creates again a union of God's kuchabrichva and shechina on this earth, causes the divine union of more spiritual energy here on this earth. So there's a process. For all mitzvahs are expressions of kindness and masculine waters, in that they cause God, he, God, heavenly godly energy to be manifest below and to become dressed in the lowly substance of this earth. So again, our mitzvahs are so to speak feminine energy rise to rise up to heaven cause a union, cause masculine energy, discussion why it's called different names for another time, but this is the idea, cause the masculine energy of God's divine flow to come here to this earth, as it explains elsewhere in chapter 23, 35 and 37. Um, I'm, I'm not going to get to the last line in here, he just explains why this applies more by Atzadik. Atzadik is more aware of this whole process. In other words, yes, we know about this process, that when we do a mitzvah, we elevate this feminine water, and that creates a union above, and, and causes the masculine energy to come down on this earth, and this this union of God with God Shachin and his and his divine presence uh, that happens for anybody. But we are just aware that that happens. A tzaddik actually feels it, and that's why it's uh, it's more acute by a tzaddik. So that's the end of the chapter of tzaddikim, and um, that's uh, an important again. That last section I think is important. Helps us understand that prayer. Next time you see the shem yichud, the the union, you understand a little bit about what's happening, and that's what. Every mitzvah we do happens. A tzaddik, a complete tzaddik may feel it more, but we uh, we can, uh, we can, know that it's true, and therefore we understand that every time we do a mitzvah, we're drawing down a new revelation of God's light here on this earth. And therefore it's important uh, that we do as many mitzvahs as we can because we are creating new channels of divine energy to allow God's kutcha uh, brichu, God's transcendent light to shine here in the Shekhinah, in God's imminent presence and that we hope and pray that we would do many many more mitzvahs and we will cause much more god's divine presence to shine here in this earth and uh with that uh, when we ultimately complete that when the full divine presence is here in this earth that is the times of mashiach may we see it very speedily be here of the amen amen
Thank you. I'll give you a heads up. Of course, next week is good. We'll discuss the Russia, the wicked person. And unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, we will learn that that's actually talking about us. I should speak for myself. It's talking about me. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we complete the Tzaddik. I know some of the Tzaddik ideas were a little beyond us. But uh, next week, we'll get talking about the Russia, the wicked person, which you will find a wicked person may not be so wicked. And uh, thank you all. And if you are interested